You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Song of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 270 of the favorite podcast. I'm Jeremiah Morrill. Today I'm joined by my forever co-host, Mr. Dakota Davis. Today's episode features Jeremiah and I talking to our guest, Mr. Jeff Moore. Perfect. Did I say it right? Nice. It. Great. Uh, Jeff is running for the Secretary of State position for the um, Libertarian Party of Indiana. Um, he's running for Secretary of State, I should say, of the state of Indiana, to be uh, more clerical. And we're going to be talking to Jeff all about the Secretary of State's race. We're going to be talking to him about what exactly the Secretary of State office does. Um, there's a lot of different tidbits of information. I learned something while writing these show notes, so that uh, make sure you stick around and hear what that is all about. There's a lot to learn. Special thanks to Sarah Morrill for uh, filling in as well. She's uh, She's got to be the executive video audio producer engineer tonight because uh, Zach, the third is, string, uh, rather. Zach is off doing other things. Uh, this show is about our lives in rural Indiana. We're here to push your boundaries and make you think as individuals. Sometimes we'll, sometimes we'll provoke you. Other times we'll make you laugh. But hopefully you'll always learn something new. Just did about 15, 20 minutes on Patreon. Uh, and we talked about, uh, well, it was honestly, we, we discovered a lot about medicine and we learned uh, there is apparently something (laughs) Something has happened as soon as we flipped the lights on in here we've heard ambulances, fire trucks. We'll see if, if the town is still standing when we go outside after, after the show is over, but don't smell smoke yet. And it's not hot. So we're okay. Yeah. We've got smoke detectors. We will probably be fine. Uh, but yeah, during Patreon, I think we, it may be unplugged. <laughs> we won't, let's listen. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. We're very secure here. It's going to be fine. Um, yeah, Patreon was fun, and we we learned a lot, and we made up some medical terms. Uh, if you guys want to be a part of that, you can jump on to uh, our website, bossarborliberty.com. Click on Patreon. Sign up at any level. Uh, you get uh, you get your name mentioned at the top of every episode. Uh, if you donate $50 or more a month, uh, our friends Anthony Meyer... Jonathan Phillips, Vandy Moore, Buick GMC, and the incredible OG Wall Superfan, Christy Avery, all are in that club. That's right. And along with the Patreon members, this show is brought to you by Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. You might feel overwhelmed, lost, or frustrated. And if that is you, then feel in control of your health with Matt Allen's help. Visit iconicinsurance.com slash libertarians to get started today. And the candidate series is brought to you, uh, as it has been every year, uh, by the combination of the Slick Pickle, the Slick Pickle, Big Bounce Inflatables, and Wyland's Flowers. And I'm quite certain that to celebrate the big anniversary in the Bertram family, that the flowers that were delivered down there this morning came from Wyland's. I'm, I'm pretty sure, yes. I saw a picture of them. They were beautiful. Yes. Everyone told me they're beautiful. As soon as I saw them, I thought, wow, these flowers are amazing. They look and like Wylands to me. It's, they have to come from Wylands if yeah. they're making people say that. Uh, listen, we use them for weddings. We use them for anniversaries. We use them for birthdays. I think just in August, Sarah mm-hmm. got a nice deli- nice bouquet delivered. We so. use them for forgotten anniversaries. My grandma forgot, not Jeremiah. I was going to say, not me. <laughs> Every <laughs> anniversary is the flower anniversary. That's right. That's right. And uh, we're appreciative. They're awesome supporters of the show, uh, a fixture in the community. So uh, we're glad to have them uh, be a part of it as well. And they are definitely the official florist of the Botch Hog Liberty podcast. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about the reason Jeff is here. Uh, it's been four years since you've been in the building. Obviously, you missed us. I've been waiting outside the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you guys just let me back in. He's just when well, the locks got changed and I... I don't even know if Brian realizes yet, but I I I, tr- I tried to shut the door on the other side, and the door the handle fell off of my hand. So it's Jeff. There's been a whole thing. It's, it's so it's not you, you. It's us. When I was here yesterday working on the audio issue, I took my two year old son down to the basement. He said there was a monster in the back. Clearly, 
Is that was that you? <laughs> Have you been living in the basement? This my summer time? palace. <laughs> <laughs> I told Jackson it was scary before when he was trying to go down there on his own. All right, you gave him the full tour, huh? Yeah, Jeff didn't get the full tour. We no, should stop I've... this and let Jeff go see the basement. We'll take him. We'll take him afterwards. Give you something to look forward to. That's right. All right, we're done torturing you. Take the take the baton, Dakota. I've just spilled something, so you're you're in charge. Oh, all right, Jeff, you're running for uh, Secretary of State for the Libertarian Party um, for the Indiana Secretary of State. Keep leaving that detail out. Um, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a bio about yourself, some background, maybe your education, work experience, and all sure, that fun stuff? Sure. So <clears throat> maybe we take a step back and talk about what is the Indiana Secretary of State. The Secretary of State that we see on the news a lot is the uh, appointee by the president. And so that's the federal level. The secretary of state federal level is our chief diplomat. Uh, But each of our 50 states have a secretary of state and our elections are primarily the focus and responsibility of that office. You don't wage war on Ohio for us. Not yet. Okay. No. (laughs) Listen, if you want to make some promises about Ohio left lane drivers, it it is not a campaign promise. It is definitely outside the scope of the office. Uh, But here in Indiana, our Secretary of State's office and Secretary of State is the third highest constitutional office. So in our Constitution of 1851, it's prescribed that's the governor, lieutenant governor, and then Secretary of State in order of succession. By its title, Secretary suggests that it's very administrative. There's not a lot of policy in this office, and that's by design. There are four major divisions. The first is the Elections Division. That's sort of what everybody knows best. The second most known perhaps is the business services division. And don't get me wrong. Uh, it's you, it's, it's Hoosiers, it's entrepreneurs, it's innovators who create businesses. You're the ones creating companies. You're the ones creating jobs. The secretaries of state secretaries of state office is the office that licenses them and recognizes them under law. So you have all the protections of law. That's the second division. The third division is called the auto dealer services division. And anytime we hear government talking about services, it means tax and regulate. And that's effectively what it does. The division enforces state law for the auto dealer industry. And the fourth division is called the securities division. And that's chiefly responsible for investigating financial crimes. So not just you stole my social security number and you use my credit card at the gas station, but instead you sold me shares into a bogus company. That's a Ponzi scheme like Bernie Madoff. How do we investigate that? How do we uncover that? How do we make that right? So it's working closely with law enforcement, prosecutors, and unfortunately victims. So that's the office. Correct. Tell us about Jeff. Tell us about Jeff. All right. So I am a Hoosier by choice. I moved here a decade ago and I live in Carmel. So I... You just have a thing against stop signs. (laughs) Roundabouts are very efficient. We're now at 140 something. I believe this is we're wrapping up National Roundabout Week, if I can remember that correctly. So I have an impatience for red lights and Carmel it was. Uh, but very happy to be there. I am uh, on a couple different Carmel boards, but my background, my undergrad degree was in business, international business marketing. Uh, my career has spanned a number of different areas, including um, several years working in budget and finance. I managed a $300 million budget, central administrative budget for a larger nonprofit organization. Uh, I then worked in uh, trucking transportation in a clean tech industry and sustainability is uh, very near and dear to my heart from a free market uh, perspective. And uh, that was a lot of marketing, biz dev, uh, deal making, and rebuilding a um, a startup company. Then during that time, I actually founded my own VR tech startup here in Indiana. So I was a CEO. I was a co-founder. I built that business here. And I've been on the other side of the, the line from the Secretary of State's office. I was the customer. I was the end user form, filing the paperwork, forming the business, needing help. And so I know what that is to serve our neighbors who are forming companies and building their dreams and trying to feed their families at the same time. It's hard. It's what, really hard. What's the experience like if you're if you're a citizen working directly with a state office? Do you, is it generally you – know, the BMV used to get a really mm-hmm. hard rap. And then probably before you, before you were a Hoosier, we had terribly long lines and it was difficult to get, you know, to get service. Now it's kind of somewhat efficient and, and less painful than other states. What's what's it like interacting on a daily basis with the SOS office? Sure. So my experience was fairly positive. Um, there are definitely worse services that we have. Uh, but on the whole, the idea is that 
if you're a small business owner and entrepreneur, you're focused on what's important to you, which is going to be your customers, your payroll, your cash flow, your product or service, your competition, your marketing, your website. Think of all the things that you're busy with. Doing a bunch of paperwork, a stack of paperwork from the government is not high on your priorities list. So how do we make that simple and clear and painless so that way it's out of the way and you can get back to doing what's most important to you, creating value for your customers? And that's the perspective that I want to bring to this office. Right. So whenever you are, so you're talking about um, starting a business, interacting with the secretary of state's office. When did it hit you that maybe I should run for secretary of state? After that, for sure. So my passion has always been technology and seeing how things, we can do things better and more efficiently. And that's part of what brought me into this lens. So I was here uh, because I was uh, in 2018 working with Mark Rutherford's campaign for Indiana Secretary of State. So I had the advantage in being familiar with the office, familiar with the issues. Uh, we were really focused on gerrymandering at that time. And fast forward to last year, 2021, when I went downtown to the state house to testify uh, before a joint session of the House and uh, State Senate on the Libertarian Party of Indiana's plan for fair redistricting. Uh, so that really came home in years worth of work and that a, a proud moment for me. But what really inspired me, what got me off the couch, so to speak, was looking at our 2020 election and looking at that in context of our 2016 election. It is my belief that a good election is one in which the losers accept the outcome not because they like the result, they lost, right? That sucks. But because they trust the process. And if you look at 2020 and 2016 in that context, our elections are failing us. They have failed us, they are failing us, and they will continue to fail us until we take action now to make them better. And you, the, the feeling is, is that that's a state issue. That's not a national, national attitude and, and what, you know, one or two candidates have said. It's, you think that there's some, Something to buy into at the state. Well, look at it this way. And the other proof is that it wasn't one party or the other. Those, those switched. In 2020, the Republicans, sorry, the, the Democrats, so the Republicans said the Democrats stole the election. In 2016, the Democrats stole, the Republicans said this, the Republicans stole the election. So it's not about party. It's about process. And that means that we have to get to the process of it. And the process that we have is unique to Indiana, but it's not totally different in other states. Either way, we have to get it right here. And elections historically and by our constitution are a state's rights issue. It is a state issue to get this right. We are the primary on this. So Dakota and I know from our past lives in, in leadership of a county political party that every county has their own process as well. So 92 counties in the state of Indiana, they all have their own elections boards. They all have their own county clerk. They purchase their own they determine how they're going to cast ballots. Something you have introduced in your, in your race is, Hey, you need to have a receipt for when you cast a ballot, you know, that you're going to be, have something that's verifiable. What does that look like? And how is it different than what we're doing today? Great question. So it's been said that there are 92 different elections in Indiana. And first we have to give real respect to the County clerks. Uh, these are directly elected public officials they do terrific work given extraordinary constraints. They've got orders from the secretary of state's office parameters that they have to fall in with, and they have to go to their county councils, county commissioners to get budget approval and authorization. They have to be the foremost experts in running elections. And if you're just elected the office, it can be a, some of these counties are small and they could have one or two other staff and they have to quickly become the expert. It's a hard job. One of the reasons why I'm uh, campaigning for more training uh, more standardization, more documentation, more resources that will make it easier to step in and become an expert clerk. Um, and the clerk community is very tightly knit. They share information. It's really inspiring to see that. Um, and so they really are trying to teach themselves and, and be the best versions that they can be. And um, anybody who spends time listening and learning from your county clerks, uh, you'll see just how much effort they put into that. And it's only a small part of their job. Um, but to answer your question about the receipt, this will help them. The receipts and audits are a tool to show that the clerks are doing their jobs and doing it well. And 
if there are vulnerabilities, if there are process vulnerabilities or discrepancies, then it's really the responsibility of the Secretary of State's office and the state to come forward and say, these are now the, the new rules that we – the new higher standards that we all have to adhere to and here's why because it will make our elections better. So I'm running for two things, to give you a receipt for your vote and a complete and independent audit of all 92 counties for our elections. Let's talk about receipts first. Was that all good first before we get to, before we get to dive yeah, into perfect. that? Let me ask you guys this. When was the last time you bought something and the seller absolutely refused to give you a receipt? Never. Yeah, never. never or, or if it did, it would strike you as really weird, right? Yeah, and suspicious, mm-hmm. right? What, what are you trying to hide? We, we just transacted. We just had a deal. Why, what are you hiding from? Why won't you document this? That's suspicious. And so part of the reason I'm running is from a very simple question of, well, why can't I get a receipt for my vote? What are you trying to hide? And now when you say a receipt, are you, now, the, the, you can have an itemized receipt mm-hmm. or you could have a, yes, you voted receipt. Correct. So are we saying itemized so I can – I will have a piece of paper that says, yes, for sure, I voted for Jeff this this election. In your it, case, you can have a special receipt for that. <laughs> I'll sign it. But Sign uh, a selfie? But in this case, no. I'm advocating for you to have a receipt that shows that you voted. And I think many of our neighbors are uncomfortable with seeing the details of the vote on receipt. Um, but that's something that we can explore in the future. Right. I'm not close to it, but I'm not advocating for that right now. So what I want is to start – a receipt for your votes that shows that you voted so that way you can go home, go online and track your vote just like a package, right? If you buy something on Amazon or FedEx, have a FedEx package, you can't necessarily see what's inside, but you know that it's coming. And that's the security that I want to bring to you to track your vote from being received to counted to audited. You can track it through the process and know that your vote has been counted. So that's that's in auditing and, and financial management. We would call that inclusive testing. You can prove that your dollar was included, right? The other side of that is exclusive testing. This is where we need an audit. So for any of our neighbors, or maybe you yourself, if you're listening, you know, what happens? What about those 100,000 dead people who woke up and voted on election day? Whether you believe that to be the case or just happen to know somebody who fears that may be the case, how do we address that issue? Look at it, the big picture. In 2020, after the election, there were all these lawsuits filed. And what came of that was the courts disproved the presence of fraud. But it's not enough to just disprove the presence of fraud. We have to prove the complete absence of it. And we have to prove the absence of fraud, not in a court of law, but in the court of public opinion. And that's a much higher burden of proof. So as I've been watching the Secretary of State's race, there has been I don't, and I don't honestly don't know if this policy is something that the SOS candidates have any influence over or if they determine it. But there's a period of time where you can early vote in Indiana. And I think it's right now, essentially, we close off a month before. 28 days. Yes. 28 days. So four weeks before October the election. 11th. That's when we say we can no longer accept any more new voters and you can start early voting the next day. That's there, right. So you can start early voting 28 days. That'll be October 11th this year, Tuesday, October 11th. Um, so I do encourage every everyone, even if you disagree with me vehemently, get out and vote. Um, please get out and vote. That's the most important thing you could do. I still believe that the most secure way to vote is in person on election day. Um, second best would be in person absentee or, or it's early voting, but in Indiana under law, early voting is absentee voting. Um, if you're voting in person, remember there are 11 different exemptions that, uh, so if you are over age 65, if you're ill or if you're going to be working during the 12 hours, election day is open. If you're going to be out of state, if you're active, actively serving the military, there are all these exemptions uh, where you can request a mail-in vote uh, and use that if you're eligible for it. I believe that should be the exception, not the rule. And so I encourage everyone to vote in person on election day. And we can talk about why I believe that's the most secure. We hear from citizens that mail-in applications just get sent to their homes. Some campaigns have said, hey, go ahead and take request your ballot or fill this out and we'll get a ballot directly to your house. So that's not something that you're necessarily encouraging. I do not support. It's called no-fault uh, mail-in voting. And so there's several states that offer that. I do not support that. I'm not championing that. I think that the mail-in voting should be the exception, not the rule. We need that for immediacy and accuracy and vote tabulations. So that way, election night, we can have some good, good sense of where we stand. 
And we have a problem in the sense that we as Americans have become habituated to having instantaneous gratification and instantaneous results election night. Anything that takes longer than a few hours, we suddenly suspect. Um, and so uh, where did the boxes appeared or boxes disappeared? And we start hearing those narratives. So we need to be accurate and we need to be fast. And voting in person will give us that benefit as long as it's backed up by a paper that we can audit. How about the vote center model that's come along in the last few years? Because I, I, I know in the time I've been active in Henry County politics in the last decade, we've gone from 41 vote locations where everybody had to go to a home precinct to now where we've got eight or 12 and anybody can turn up at any one of them and vote. Is that helpful for the process? Is that something that we should be doing across the state? Are there concerns with that? So that pro that model has proven to be effective and there are many counties that have that. Uh, so this is the question. The question is vote center model. Um, it really is a choice of the counties. And this is the relationship between the secretary of state's office and the counties. Remember the secretary of state sets the parameters. You can choose off of this menu, but you, the county have to make the final selections. That way the experience and the costs and the infrastructure for Switzerland County, very different from Henry County, very different from Marion County. It's not a one size fits all, but if everybody chooses off this approved menu, it's okay. And that's the idea. And so that's why some counties, if you're listening to this, you might be voting in a voting center and some counties you might not be, Um, but that's good. It's decentralized. It allows government to respond most rapidly and directly to the needs of its local citizens. So that's being that policy or that menu is produced by the SOS office. Correct. But then it, it's left to the counties to determine which one of those that they want to use. Correct. And the Secretary of State's office creates the menu for which voting machines are permitted and tested uh, and number the processes. So there's a lot that's set as standard. We're going to talk about raising the standard, right? Yep. When we, if, if and when we discover any vulnerabilities in the process, we need to raise the, the tide for everybody. Is that, I, Dakota and I have a gripe against a certain set of machines. That, that we're using yeah. around here. I share in the same gripe. I was going to interrupt, but I decided not to. Yeah, so we had an, an issue with our machines here where the first... 20, um, 2018 cycle was the first time we had them. Yeah, but the first question that you have is to choose a party affiliation. Mm-hmm. So you have Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, and if that's for straight ticket voting, and if you decide, uh, I'm not going to do a straight ticket vote going to go through the ballot and you just click next without clicking one, then an error message pops up and says, Hey, you left this question blank. You have undervoted and big old error. Are you that sure? A lot of people. Um, I know the first year that we had them 2018, like Jeremiah said, I actually got the numbers and compared straight ticket voting from previous years to that year. And there was quite a significant jump. Um, that was an, it's quite an issue. So it needs to be said that Indiana is one of six remaining states that still carries straight ticket voting. And straight ticket voting is a disservice to you because you are missing out on all the nonpartisan races. If you choose one party, you don't get to vote in any of the nonpartisan races like school board, um, some trustees, some referendum. There are a lot of races that are nonpartisan and you are – eliminating your vote. You're doing a disservice to yourself by voting straight ticket in that sense. Uh, there are other counties, depending on their their own local county law and ordinance, as well as the way the machines are programmed, what's called a scratch vote. So you need to check with your local county, but let's say you check one party because you want to do straight ticket voting, but then for one office, you choose somebody, uh, dog catcher, right? You choose straight picket, ticket party A, but for dog catcher, you really love a candidate for t- party B. And by choosing somebody that is outside of all party A, now your vote is scratched. There's an irreconcilable difference because the v- the vote is invalid because it's not internally consistent. You haven't chosen all party A candidates in that case. And what happens is your entire – county by county, it will vary. Your entire vote can be scratched, not counted. So – Straight ticket voting can be really perilous, and I encourage all voters to, one, do your homework, research your candidates, go to indianavoters.com, indianavoters, plural, .com. Um, it is the official portal for the, from the Secretary of State's website, so you can log in with your name, date of birth, and county. You can see if you're registered. You can see your current registration ad- address. You can see your current registration status. Uh, you can see who will be on your ballot. It's really useful and good information for educating yourself before voting. 
And then when you do go to vote, make sure that um, you're voting for the right candidate. The Secretary of State's office does not determine if we could have something like ranked choice voting, however, correct? That is correct. That is not a policy decision that the office gets to make. You can just advocate or explain why why we may want to look at certain things. Correct. So the Secretary of State becomes the expert in many of these issues like elections and then goes to the General Assembly and recommends and champions changes to the law to make our elections better. Of course, that bill needs to become law by being signed by the executive, so it has to work with the governor's office to get signed as well. But to be clear, we don't my, – my big reason for running is that we just don't know what's inside our elections. We don't know the unknown unknowns. The only way to determine those is with a real comprehensive, independent, risk-limiting audit. So it's sort of like, uh, Dakota, you weren't feeling well, right? So you didn't go to the doctor and get your toe checked. You were able to narrow it down and say, I probably need to have somebody look at my ear. But if they were looking in your ear and found a different problem, look at something else. Maybe it was your throat. Maybe it was your leg. Who knows? They could then expand that and follow the science. So, and I know that that term has been that's used overly a lot. political now. I know yeah. that that's been used a lot. But the process of scientific inquiry is to go where the data goes. Right. So I'm not coming to this with a lens of I'm here to prove that so and so won an election or so and so lost an election. It's just simply as a process, what's working, what's not. If we were running a lemonade stand, where, where's our vulnerability? Who's going to take our cash? Who's going to take the cash register? Who's going to um, harass our employee? Let's look at not only the technology and the processes, but the people around it too. And that's where our elections, our, our audits are really failing us right now. So we have one organization called VSTOP. They answer to the Secretary of State's office. They're government employees. They're based out of Ball State. Um, and they are in charge of a twofold mission. One is certifying all of our voting machines and software. And the other is checking that their certifications were good. So after an election, they do a post-election audit, which is not a complete risk-limiting audit. They just check to make sure whether the machines and software ran the way they were supposed to. So I could put a cash register from our lemonade stand on the desk here and say, the, the hardware is good, is designed correctly, it's working well, the software was working as intended. But you and I both know from common sense, because that's who we are, if we left that cash register drawer open and left our front door open, walked away overnight with the lights on, somebody's going to rob us. Not probably. in this town. Not in this town, but somewhere else. Run, maybe run the roundabouts. Who knows? <laughs> so it's not town. just the equipment. We have to look at all the people, all the processes around it. B-Stop checks their own work. They're not independent. And then they're auditing their own boss, the Secretary of State. They choose, after an election... Guess how many counties get audited out of 92? Zero to 92, pick a number. Price is right style. 18. 18? Seven. Seven? Three. Three. In this case, Jeremiah would be correct at five. So until 2022, the number just doubled to 10 this election. But to date, only five elect five counties get elected, get audited after an election. Five out of 92. In 2020, they were very proud to say we audited more than 5,000 votes. Now, if they audited more than 100,000, they probably would have said 100,000. But in this case, they said 5,000. 5,000 on 3 million, not a whole lot. Um, so they choose which counties, they choose which machines, they choose which races, they choose which votes they're going to audit. It's not a random audit. If anybody has ever taken a random drug test, it's a threat of a drug test because it's random. You don't know when it's coming or who's going to get it. It's not random at all. These are not random audits. They're not going to catch anything that they don't want to present to us. It's a dog and pony show. After all this, the, the report that they produce is secret. They don't even put it online. They, there's no way to access it. Independent journalists have requested it through open records requests. Remember, it's a government agency. They work for us. The contract to um, VSTOP, I think, is in the order, on the order of 4 or $5 million a year. So we're paying them money to do this work for us, we the people, and we can't even get access to that report. So there are all these questions about it. And So I, as a candidate, you've been denied that as well, I Yeah, so um, I, as a candidate and campaign, have not requested that documentation. However, the Libertarian Party of Indiana did request a file and open records request. Uh, this was now over a month ago. And um, this was for VSTOP. This was for the Elections Commission and the Secretary of State's office, three separate requests. And to date, uh, there have been some fingers pointed at each other saying, no, you need to ask this office. And no one has yet produced the documents, although they assure us they're working on it. 
Very interesting. It is. Mm. So we don't even know what's on there. There is one and only one sentence on the Secretary of State's website at the very bottom that talks about the outcome of this report. And it says, I'm going to try and quote verbatim here, in each race examined, the results of the election were confirmed with a high degree of statistical assurance above 90%. Above 90%. So I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but that number gave me chills. Because we don't know what their methodology was, right? When we do a political poll, everybody fights about the methodology. How'd you do this? How'd you count that? We want to get to the guts of it. But we have no idea what their methodology was. They won't tell us. So without any context, in the worst case, it could mean they're saying we lost one out of every 10 votes and we're saying this is a great election. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I'm guessing that if we lost one out of every 10 planes fell out of the sky – we would ground everything and figure it out before we went into the air again. So why don't we have that same discipline, that same courage, that same destination for truth in our elections? What are you hearing from voters as you're having, as you're having these conversations with voters and doing your door knocking? Is it, is that message being received? Is it, is it, is it hitting home? Our neighbors are common sense people. We're common sense people. It's government that tries to confuse us and to think that it's, so complicated that only they can be experts in it. And we heard this during 2008, remember, with um, the financial crisis. Oh, these um, these complicated credit default swaps, you'll never understand these. No, we understood it was a poop sandwich. And we had enough common sense to realize that's toxic. Guess what? It was. So I hope I'm not right about this too. But at the very least, we deserve the right to know and to understand what's actually in it. That's what our neighbors are getting excited about. That's what Hoosier voters are getting excited about. Common sense solutions. So receipts and audits, good for you, good for me, good for everybody because it puts us all transparent. At the end of the day, this is the bottom line. If we can count our votes the way we count cash, we're going to finally get the elections that we deserve. All right. So that's so this that would be the number one concern or number one issue day one is is election security. That and that's that's what you're that's, that's absolutely my focus that's because the takeaway we want folks to have. We can, the entire existence of our nation, of our state, of our way of life can be doubted out of existence. And we came perilously close on January 6th. What happens next time? We need to be ready to show, show our work. Here's what happened in the election. Here's what was counted. Here's what worked. Just think about going to a restaurant and having an open kitchen model. You can go in and look and see that everything's being done correctly. Think about a fifth grader's math homework. Show your work. Show how you got to this. That's what we need. That's what we demand and expect from our elections. So this is an open seat. There's not an incumbent secretary of state that's running for re-election. Uh, three-way race, yourself and uh, Diego Morales, the Republican, and uh, the Democrat, Destiny Wells. Correct. Uh, I assume that this, since this is a statewide race, the Indiana Debate Commission is hosting you guys, and you're debating two or three times out in public and having, having spirited conversations. How's that going? You would assume, but in this case, unfortunately, not correct. Uh, so we have a Republican opponent who has not come forward to debate at all whatsoever. And what I hear from... Was it Greg Pence? Uh, not in this case. <laughs> Shocker. A little what inside we, baseball. What, we, what I've heard from the organizers of these debate events is that that campaign has not only refused, but has completely ignored and not even responded. Um, the Democrat and I have both been very forthcoming and eager to debate. Uh, to their credit, the Democrat Party of Indiana hosted a series of 15 town hall events across Indiana to 15 different counties. This was much earlier in the spring. And I, the Libertarians, they invited Libertarians, they invited Republicans. There were zero Republicans uh, across all 15 events. Uh, Democrat candidates appeared and, and disappeared as they were able to join. Um, I was able to attend at least half a dozen. Uh, James Siniak, my, our libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate, was the only candidate, Democrat, Republican, or libertarian, to attend all 15 events. So hats off to him. And uh, it was a great opportunity to be on stage with my Democrat opponent and to talk substantively about some of the issues. Uh, there are areas where we agree, areas where we disagree. But either way, debate is the essence of who we are as a free people. This is how we discover the, the thought and the issues and who's going to actually give us the tomorrow that we want. So I continue to challenge our Republican opponent 
to join us on the debate stage. Uh, there have been a number of, of personalities, celebrities, uh, organizations like the Bar Association, Debate Commission, and others who have tried to organize events, and the Republican campaign has just ignored or refused all of them. This has become a theme. It really has. And not just that race, but there, it feels like there's this game of keep away that happens. And whether it's a political strategy uh, of a candidate saying, hey, I think you know the deck is stacked for me so that I can, I can just hide and not answer questions and I'm going to win just based on that letter by my name. At some point, it's going gonna, it's gonna to backfire and, and the voters are going to see it. It's a lot easier to win musical chairs if you can sit down before everybody else. All right. Yeah. So uh, we talked a lot about elections. Um, let's talk a little bit about licensing in sure. the state of Indiana. And as you said before, that's a big part of the the job. Um, what are your just big picture view? What's your what's your view of uh, licensing policies in the state of Indiana as it would pertain to your office? Sure. So we're talking about business licensing, which is right. We're talking about the second uh, of four divisions within the office, and. From a perspective of how do we, we we want to subsidize and encourage people to do the things that we want as a society we want them to do, and we want to tax and disincentivize the things that we don't want them to do. So we don't want people to smoke, so we put a tax on cigarettes. We want people to start businesses, so we tax them. How does that make sense? Uh, we should make it easy and straightforward. For everybody listening, pay attention. Have you ever formed started a business on Etsy or opened up a lemonade stand in the corner with kids? It should be that easy, that straightforward. Why is it that much harder to file it and do it legally? If we can make it as fast and as painless to start an Amazon, uh, sorry, to start a Facebook marketplace shop or an Etsy business or uh, a store on Amazon, it should be that easy for the Secretary of State's office. So we need absolute clarity. We need straightforward paperwork. We need to follow the law as it's written. A bigger picture and more strategically to work with the general assembly and make it easier, less onerous, uh, less burdensome. But in the immediate solution, we need to make it fast and painless. And part of that means living where businesses live. Again, having been that founder, been that CEO, I'm focused on my business all day long. And maybe by Saturday night, I start to look at the stack of paper from the government that says, I need to fill this out. That's when I've got questions. That's when I need help. It'd be great to be able to text um, or ask a phone call ask any phone call in those hours. So government in order to serve businesses, in order to serve entrepreneurs needs to live where they live. And that means expanding hours, expanding service. But more than that, there's an opportunity for leadership. We see businesses flourish when there's clarity and an environment that is welcoming to small businesses. I'm not talking about millions of dollars to bring in some billion dollar foreign business and and have them open office here. No, I'm talking about your neighbor, the person who's going to start a hairdressing business, a haircutting business, lawn mowing business, a food truck business, even tech business. How do we start those Hoosier homegrown businesses right here? Everybody knows, talking about 4-H, right? Everybody knows certain soils grow certain crops. And in Indiana, our soil for our natural talent, the people, the entrepreneurs, people we have here, innovative caring, perceptive, uh, reactive, creative, efficient, entrepreneurial. We have all that. Let's harness that. Let's make it easy to start a business and to grow that dream. That's the leadership that we need for the office. Yeah. So there, so you're saying like major changes that you would want to make would be expanding hours Mm -hmm. for people who work under the secretary of state to help answer questions. Uh, you would try to make the the burden of filing paperwork and things a little less burdensome. Expanded hours, expanded services. So texting as well, not just phone messaging. Um, and then dedicating a, or creating a dedicated account representative so that you always had one person to ask for help. If we have government follow the customer service model that for-profit industry has used for years, decades, centuries, millennia, that's what wins. We saw this with the BMV, right? It's all about customer service. How do we make it easier, faster, better, less stressful for you. The BMV was changed and transformed. They created a metric of how, how long is somebody in here from the moment they, they ask for a ticket to the moment they get out of there. Correct. Right. And they have a target that they're trying to achieve. We don't even know how many phone calls they get after hours as a simple metric, how many questions are being unanswered 
in those hours and at those times? And how can we improve that personalization of service? How can we have somebody grow with you as from a small business of maybe one person to a small business of five, 10, and now a medium-sized business of 100? That's the growth we want to encourage. Let's do the right things. I can say from a perspective of my household with my wife taking her small business legit this year, um, it was a process of, oh, I don't know that we can do this all by ourselves. So let's, we went through legal zoom, mm-hmm. go through legal zoom and pay them to do everything else. And basically just tell us what needs to be done. And then file that paperwork with the secretary of state's office. And that's what happens is it creates mm-hmm. government creates a barrier to entry mm-hmm. for somebody that wants to start right. the business. And they're not going to go to the secretary of state to figure it out themselves. They're going to hire a third party that has now, built a business model around it's so complicated you can't do this without without hiring right. somebody the, like me. The problem is you get like trying to find answers on the Secretary of State's website is horrendous. It's like finding I mean honestly finding answers on anything to do with the state of Indiana uh, government online is just a horrific experience. And the Secretary of State's office has been no different. In, in my experience. And that's the divider here. If you need a third party to make this happen, that's a huge barrier to entry. If we want to encourage people to start businesses, to hire, to create, to build, to create value, then we need to make that easy. And again, if you can set up a Facebook marketplace uh, post or an Etsy business or an Amazon seller business within a few clicks, then why is it so much more difficult to form a business legally and get the benefit of all that. I have, yeah, the, with, I have uh, the feeling that if you go to a, one of the workshops they have now and they say, Hey, you say, Hey, I'm, I'm Audrey and I'd like to start my, my dainty days or daisy company. I want to do it legally. You're just going to get a government bureaucrat that hands you a giant stack of papers and says, just read this and you're fine. Nobody's walking you through it. Nobody's explaining how it goes and you have to interpret it on your own. There's also this idea of a threat of, Oh, if I do something wrong, going to come after vulnerable. That's right. And, and they will. I mean, that's what government does. Um, and in part, that's their job, but also it shouldn't be that hard and it shouldn't be that daunting. So that's the office side of this. Let's there, talk. A, there's ahead, one, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about on the office side of thing, things on the secretary of state's website today. Um, this was the, the description that they gave, which is, um, The present duties include chartering of new businesses, regulation of the securities industry, oversight of state elections, commissioning of notaries public, registration of trademarks, and licensing of vehicle dealerships in Indiana. And I thought that the licensing licensing of vehicle dealerships being its own thing seemed kind of weird. And that is the auto dealer services, quote-unquote, services division. Um, so that is part of that division's responsibility, and really it's enforcing the state laws around auto dealers. So if you are an auto dealer and you don't, um, you appear to not be in business and your address moved or there's nobody there at your address, um, it is the Secretary of State's office that comes in and says, nope, you appear to be out of business, um, issuing dealer plates. Uh, there's a process for that, a formula by laws. So just going through those, those mechanics of it. Um, if you are delayed in sending a title from a car you sold, then there's a, a fairly nominal hundred to five hundred dollar penalty for that. To escalates depending on the number, the frequency of it. But it's important to remember free market solutions here. The penalties under law enforced by the Secretary of State's office are hundreds, maybe a couple thousand dollars. But if you get one bad review on your website, you know how this works. You get one bad review. That could cost an auto dealer hundreds of thousands of dollars over a few months. The free market penalty for not for bad customer service is far more costly than any slap on the wrist government can give. Now, we still have the obligation to enforce the laws until we can amend and improve them. But let's work with industry. Let's work with the auto dealers so that way we can streamline what needs to be enforced so they can go back to actually doing what's most important, helping serving their customers. That way we eliminate the real source of the problem. 
The other area that is actually perhaps even more important for the auto dealers industry is in the gray area where enforcing the law as it's written pretty straightforward and clear. But where there are gray areas is the balance in relationship between the dealers and the manufacturers. And there's just like any kind of franchisee franchisor relationship, there's a push pull. There's um, sort of like the Michael Jackson video where they're both their hands are tied together and they're both holding knives. They both want to be together and they both want to be apart. And when issues arise between a dealer and a manufacturer, having a clear path and clear case law and maybe even an administrative court to accelerate this and de-escalate the costs and de-escalate the risks, that will make business run smoother. That will allow dealers to be more successful and serve their customers better. Yeah, you've got <clears throat> I, I know that the state of Illinois has really used their Secretary of State's office to crack down on some newer dealership models. I think Carvana has really struggled to the point where they actually almost got thrown out of the state and they're on like continuing uh, appeal number three to try to continue to exist. And it's over exactly what you're talking about with titles uh, and not being furnished on time. And, and that's the the point where the state starts to have to use the mm-hmm. force that they're entrusted by, by the taxpayers to keep businesses essentially for consumer protection. And it's true. So one, there are new, new businesses struggle to work out the kinks, right? We open up a lemonade stand. We're going to take a few minutes or a few customers to figure out how to get the process to work smoothly. So new customers that are building in a, a new model are going to struggle with that naturally as part of any kind of business evolution. But more than that, technology changes. So all the online sales, think about how not only technology changes, but consumer preferences change. And to keep current with that and to adjudicate the relationship between dealer and manufacturer during all these changes, that's where a real role in leadership comes in because it keeps the machine running. It keeps vehicles moving to dealers, moving to consumers, and it keeps everybody happy along the process. It'll be interesting to see. You know, As some of the new school auto manufacturers are coming along as well, they're starting to cut dealerships out of, out of that model as well. Um, but automobiles have been here for a hundred years. The model has been pretty consistent for about the last 70 or 75 years. And now we're going through a period of time where I think there's going to be some disruption uh, and we'll see, we'll see what happens but and how that affects the secretary of state's office. Down and, the line. and it will create new industries and new jobs. Um, so it is true that change is painful because people, I'm not here to subsidize the wagon wheel makers, that industry, that technology, that need evaporated nearly a hundred years ago. Are there some still? Sure. But should we pay because we want to honor the legacy of wagon wheel makers? No. They need to be repurposed or need to find new purpose in new work with new technologies. They are tire manufacturers. The, wa- the wagon wheel people started making steel wheels for cars. Absolutely, they right. did. All right. So that is the, the mechanics of the office and the responsibilities of it. There's, there's one more division I would love to touch on. Certainly. And that is the securities division. So it's the fourth one. And this one is near and dear to my heart. Uh, in 2016, I had we, my... We noticed that, that white collar you're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Touche. In 2016, I had my identity stolen, my social security number. And it was I was assigned for utility bills in Connecticut, a state that I never lived in and certainly never had any bills there. And it was a full-time job and burden proof was on me to clear my name. It was a truly miserable, awful experience, and I don't wish it on anyone. So white-collar financial crime is even more heinous. These are fraudsters who are often out preying on our neighbors. And look at where we are right now. We have an entire generation of baby boomers who've done everything right. They've worked hard all their lives. They've saved. They've invested. And they're at a point now where they're trying to give that wealth, that savings, to their children, grandchildren, even great-grandchildren, to make their lives even better. That's all the right thing. And there are fraudsters out there who will say, sure, invest in my company and double your money, whatever the, the promise is. We saw this in 2008, or the collapse of it in 2008 with Bernie Madoff and the Ponzi scheme. There, and he wasn't the only one. There were all these Ponzi schemes around the country. And it doesn't have to be as overt a fraud as a Ponzi scheme. There are all kinds of deceptive um, schemes selling shares and companies that are semi-bogus or, or semi-fraudulent. And the people who are deceived, the victims, the people who are neighbors who lost their entire life savings or could have lost their entire life savings, they're the ones that need this justice. That is one of the core values of government is to protect us as citizens. And yes, we should have savvy um, professional investors, 
But at the same time, there are criminals out there looking to take advantage of this. And so the office helps investigate those crimes and works closely with law enforcement and prosecutors to make sure the people who perpetrate these crimes are apprehended and punished. So that way you can be a safe investor. Does it have any influence over state retirement and pension systems as well? Or it's just entirely just the regulation side of it, I guess. It, I, how many people are actually under the purview of the Indiana Secretary of State's office? Because obviously Wall Street and those some of those securities are are based at, in, oh, outside of the state of Indiana. There's absolutely an overlapping matrix of regulatory government. So they'll happen at the federal level, uh, banks and uh, – used to be savings loan or credit unions now um, have different levels or different agencies that regulate them and oversee them at different levels uh, based on their charter. But for this, this is really about investment crime securities, right? If we're selling shares or ownership in some corporation or entity, that's really the focus of it. And it's important to remember that anything below $10,000, sorry, $10 million is really going to be primary focus of the local secretary of state's office. Above that, you can start involving federal agencies and federal resources to start investigating, prosecuting these crimes. But if I lost $10 million, I'd be really hurt. If I lost $10, I'd go looking for it, let alone 10 million. Um, So everybody between zero and $10 million, all of our neighbors who lose that, that's the secretary of state's office um, to go work with them, to defend them, to seek justice in our world and in our state. Okay. Yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to figure out who the uh, who the criminals are in in this case. Who you're pursuing is it? Is it yeah, I know you referenced Bernie Madoff earlier, and obviously that was a, a Ponzi scheme in a different area. But I'm I'm trying to figure out if it's a you know if it's your if financial Madoff advisor, if it's a, what kind of folks these are. They can be advisors. They can be owners. They could be investors. There are a lot of different, and, and that's why some of these frauds are so complex. Uh, because they seem very legitimate or there are all these levels and shells. And so it does take a sophisticated uh, group of people to look through this and understand it. And that's part of the, it goes hand in hand with the business registration because we need to understand how is the business structured? Who are the players? Who are the officers? um, What are their incentives or disincentives and where does the money go? So you can see how those two things work really much, uh, very much hand in glove. So, and you're, you're, background especially would help you in this arena in working budget finance uh, working very closely with internal audit and prepping for external audit making sure that we had good accounting processes and procedures guys none of this is rocket science uh how many here raise your hand have you been have been to see a movie in a movie theater before COVID? right oh absolutely yeah exactly love it you go you buy a ticket and then when you go into the theater somebody else takes your ticket the key there is somebody else in accounting terms it's called dual controls the idea is that collusion, collaboration, is much harder if you have two people doing it. So if it's one person who sells you the ticket and takes the ticket, they could tear it in half, put the money in their pocket, and say, no ticket sold. Go on in, enjoy the movie. But having two people and avoiding the light or lessening, radically, exponentially lessening the likelihood of fraud or collaboration is a good security process. And we see this if anybody's ever worked retail um, in your lives in high school or today – Anytime, you know that at the end of the night, that cash drawer gets counted and it gets counted by somebody who's not you. And there's a very good reason for that because it's checking. Even in elementary school, right? We end up, we finish a quiz or a test. Okay, kids, pass your, hand your, pass your test. Exactly. You got it. Pass your test to the person next to you and we're going to add it up at the end. So none of this is rocket science. It's just good business com- practice, common sense. It goes back to the fact that if we can count our votes the way we count our cash, we're going to finally get the elections that we deserve. And so coming from that business perspective, that discipline, those disciplines are what I want to bring to the office. So we're coming down to the end of the election cycle here. This race is also very important for the Libertarian Party of Indiana. You noticed. It's, it's the, uh, it's, it's the, this is the race that determines if, the, if a political party gets to be on the ballot. Uh, which the Libertarian Party of Indiana has achieved since 1994. So the 2% threshold is not really a concern as much as it had, you know, had been in other cycles, Mm -hmm. but there's also some upside here that if you can get to which percentage, 10% or, and or second place. 
So let's dive into that. Um, so you were absolutely correct. Under Indiana state law, our ballot access race is defined as the Secretary of State's race. In many other states, they use the presidency or the gubernatorial race as a ballot access race. But in Indiana, we're, we're not alone, but we have the Secretary of State's race. And I might argue that that's a feature, not a bug, because think about it. This is a largely administrative office. It's very diff- difficult to differentiate based on policy. What do you say? My candidate files papers better than your candidate? How do you differentiate? And well, it's hard to. We spent 45 minutes showing why the race is important and why, mm-hmm. you, why you, you know, you're making a very compelling case about being a very qualified candidate. But yeah, if you're, if you're looking at, hey, it's Donald Trump versus Joe Jorgensen versus Joe Biden making that decision and they just can't possibly risk voting for the libertarian because one of these other people might win, it's Secretary of State's race, right? They, they can say, hey, I'm going to live if, if, if my guy doesn't win. Right. Um, so under law, this is the ballot access race for all parties, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, Green, Communist Party of America, Save the Whale Party. If And this is where it's so important because we have we're, – we're diverse, complicated people. We have special issues that we care about. Uh, in Henry County, it might be the, the Hell with the Windmills Party um, or the – I love Windmills Party. And you should be able to form that party and advocate and organize and run candidates on it. So getting access for a, to organize as a political party, just like forming a business or an LLC, is important because that's how we humans work together and, and collaborate. The ballot access is the same for all parties. And in Indiana, below 2%, unfortunately, you're almost politically irrelevant because you have to get signatures to get on the ballot to then compete for votes in the election. And that's a double, triple cost in time, effort, dollars. It's very, very difficult, prohibitively so. Above 2%, if your candidate, if your, if your party's candidate achieves 2% or more in the Secretary of State's race, then your party gets, primary, or sorry, gets general election access. So as you said, the Libertarian Party has had that consistently since 1994, which means if you wish to run as libertarian, assuming the libertarian party authorizes you and agrees with you, then you don't need to collect signatures to get in the ballot. You just say, I'm filing as libertarian for this office and um, you're on the ballot. Above 10%, and this is the next tier within state law. The highest tier. Uh, the, well, no, not the, not the highest. There's there, the, the two uh, major parties are the first place and second place party. So you can still have 11% but not be a first or second place finish. So you're still not what's called a major party. So it's the penultimate um, tier, if you will, but above 10%, your party gets access not only to the primary, but also not only to the general, but also to the primary. And the primary comes with two major benefits. First, you get the benefit of millions of dollars of earned media because your candidates are being mentioned in the May or June primary elections. The second, even more valuable perhaps is data. Indiana is an open primary state. So you walk in and you say, I'm a Republican. I want to pull a Republican ballot, please, as an example. And that information is secret, except that it goes to the parties. So the parties who participate in the primary know who their base is. They know who to call for donations, for campaigning, for volunteering, to run for office, to join a campaign. They know who their base is, whereas every other party is kept out of that. It doesn't get access to that information. So at 10% or more, if I, if I in this race now get 10% or more, the Libertarian Party for the first time will get access to primary elections in Indiana. And that will truly be transformative for the political landscape here for the next four years. And remember, this access is set every time this race, come, Secretary of State's race comes up. So it's once every four years. Whatever we do now is locked and set for the next four years. Through 2026. Next, correct. The second benefit or second goal um, within this, um, even without winning the office, is coming in second place. And again, under Indiana state law, each county, each of 92 counties, each county election board is comprised of three people. The first is the separately elected county clerk. The second is the, or, and the second and third people are appointees of the first and second place parties in the secretary of state's race. So in a typical county, it's, it's Indiana, right? It's red. We have, we'll have a Republican elected clerk. The Republicans will come in first place in the Secretary of State's race, so they appoint one person. So now the county, the county election board has two Republicans and one Democrat. As Libertarian, 
I, if I come in second place in any of those counties, we will appoint a libertarian or get to get to appoint a libertarian to that county election board of three people. And you might ask, has this ever been done? Can it be done? How high is this glass ceiling? And I can point to evidence. Donald Rainwater, our libertarian candidate for governor in 2020, just two short years ago, not only did he achieve 11.5%, so he would have broken that 10% ceiling, but he also came in second place in, would you like to guess, out of 92 counties? Seven, three, 18, same numbers? What 24. Are we 24? Um, I'm going to say, yeah, I'll, I'll just stick with 18. 18, okay, good night. Sarah, what do we think? I'm going to stick with my seven. Seven, okay. Answer is 33. Ooh. 33 out of 92. So that's one out of three counties. Oh, man, I was so close to bumping up by 10. I was almost like 28. Henry County. Including Henry County. Yeah. So think about the transformation that we'll have when we have libertarians as part of that county election board with the same philosophy of whatever it is, let's count it exact. Not cut it, not count it fat, not cut it thin, but cut it exact. Very good. All right. Let's start to wrap up our, uh, wrap up our show as we traditionally do. Final thoughts. Go around the room. Everybody gets a chance to share, clean up, ask final questions, promote what they've got going on. Sarah, you've been over there producing. Is it, has it felt good? It, it feels keeping, much better. There are Zach's less complaints warm. in the chat about there not being any sound or too much sound. So that's good. That's so way to go, Jackson. Thank you for repairing our video capture device. We needed to bring in one of those Tide Pod eaters, and now it's all fixed. <laughs> but yeah, sounds good. Well, thank you for uh, producing the show for us. Tonight. Of course. Awesome. Anything else? You want to promote anything? Nope. Just if you're going to be out at Eldora this weekend, come find us. We'll be in turn one. Turn one. Turn one covered in dirt. Cheering on Kyle Robbins. Yeah. Newcastle and Ball Hog Zone in the in the Silver Crown race, mm-hmm. the uh, big four crown, biggest dirt race of the year at Eldora, and we get to, we get to go cheer him on. So I know our camping lot is sold out because I tried to look. I was trying to find a map, couldn't find one for a minute. So I was like, oh, well, let me go try to reserve a spot. And then it said, oh, no, it's sold out. It's full. So, yeah, the uh, the Boss Hogger Liberty sticker is still on the dirt car. So we fingers will be, crossed. Uh, we will be a s- tiny quarter-sized sponsor on the uh, on the side of the door panel. Beautiful. So, very good. Jeff, this has been awesome, man. Well, I hope this has been good for you and everybody listening. Um, I know this isn't always the most riveting stuff, but when we see our entire – our neighbors fighting against neighbors using violence, um, that that hurts me. And that's the outcome that I'm trying to avoid. So if people want to get involved, they want to donate, they want to go door knocking with you, how do they How do they find out more? Sure, lots of different ways. And like any campaign, we need all the help we can get. Um, so the website is moreforindiana.com. That's M-A-U-R-E-R-F-O-R, indiana.com. And from there, you can uh, see all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we're on TikTok now, YouTube, of course, Pinterest. Um, but there's also a phone number, 317-721-6438. And the idea here is, if nothing else, even if we disagree on everything, I believe government should answer to you. I'm here to serve you. And so call me, text me. It's, I've got a phone in my pocket. That phone number will reach that phone in my pocket, 317-721-6438. He's got it muted. Don't call right now. Well, yeah, I won't hear it now, but it will it will reach this phone. So as soon as we hang up, as soon as we get off, yeah. off air, I'll, I'll pull it up and see if anybody messaged me. Um, but the idea is that I answer to you in this office. I'm here to serve, and I know that that doesn't mean what it used to mean. But try me. If you think that government ignores you and is unresponsive and believes that it doesn't even have to take your phone call or answer your email, try it. And if you like the way that I campaign, maybe you'll like the way that I serve you in office. Awesome. If you are watching on the Facebook Live, we did pin his website. It's one of the comments. We had a commenter chime in with the website. So it is pinned in the uh, live chat there. In the Facebook Live feed. Correct. D-squared. All right. Just wanted to say uh, thanks, Jeff, for coming on. It's good to see you again. Um, always good to I, – I enjoy the candidate series. I missed the first episode. Um, but I'm, this is a this is a good series for us, and uh, it's it's always good to get to know the people that are on your ballot. Sometimes it's sad to get to know the people that are on your ballot uh, whenever they lose, like Betsy Mills, uh, my girl lost in the primary. That was heartbreaking. That's a, that's a bad part of having friends that are on the ballot, 
If they don't win, then it feels deeply personal. Um, but I still enjoy this series. Um, I want to thank everyone for watching. I want to thank uh, Wildlands Flowers again for sponsoring. Um, we appreciate those folks. And then also uh, patreon.com slash boss hog of liberty. Um, go leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, Spotify, you can leave a review right in the app and it would reach us. Also, um, the website. You can leave a review on bosstalkofliberty.com. You can even leave a voicemail. Uh, do that. That would be cool. Uh, yeah, that's all I got. Very good. Being accessible is good. Yeah. Jeff, it's, thank you so much for coming out to Newcastle and hanging with us. It's uh, we, we try to thank every candidate for getting out here, and it's, it's an incredibly selfless act to put yourself forward and dedicate a year of your life to run for an office. It's been and, longer than that, but and, keep going. Oh, yeah. Whatever, whatever period of time it is, but it's it. none of the government processes we have work without candidates. And you have been a tremendous candidate working very hard for a very long time, putting the effort in. And you've come to us here two, two months before the election as a complete candidate. And you can tell it. And I hope that the listeners have, have given you the opportunity and, and when they go pull a ballot this this November or I guess October twelfth or beyond, uh, they look at the three people in the race and say, "Hey, look, if if Jeff can Jeff can do it, there's a huge there's a huge upside um, to some political changes that could happen across the state of Indiana uh, beyond just the Secretary of State's race." So, thank you very much for participating. Thank you for having me. This being is, a part of it. this is the discourse that we need, and we need to have this among neighbors at our offices. This is who we are as Americans, and this is what differentiates us from all the other nations in the world where they're using violence to settle their differences. This is what makes us us, why we hold ourselves higher, why the rest of the world looks up to us. So let's do it right. Let's uphold that tradition. Wonderful. Candidate series continues next week. I believe we have James Seniak scheduled, and then following that, we're going to have some sheriff's candidates on. So we are picking up steam, racing our way to November. Thank you. We'll see you next week.